Open it to the Gospel of Luke there in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15. If you're using one of these Bibles from the pews, it's page 874. We'll look at two brief parables today, the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. God's word as I begin reading in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So they, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. These uh, two parables, though they are slightly different, they teach the same point, along with the parable of the prodigal son that, that follows those. They focus on the central point that God loves sinners, and he goes to great lengths to pursue them, and so should we. That's the point of these two parables and the one that follows the prodigal son. It tells us the simple setting. The context is told in verse 1 that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So these um, people that were not religious, that were not involved with the synagogue, the local place of worship in the Jewish community, they were coming to hear Jesus. Now there's an irony here, though you wouldn't pick up on it because we did not read the previous chapter, chapter 14. But in chapter 14, Jesus has been giving the cost of discipleship. He's been giving uh, the overview of what the sacrifice will be involved if we are his disciple. So that was the message they were hearing. And apparently that is the message to which they were drawn. So in chapter 14, he said, If you're a disciple, you must carry your own cross and come after me. In verse 28 of chapter 14, he he urges them to calculate the cost before following him. He says, So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. So this was the message that the unlikely crowd was assembling to hear. Jesus was approachable. Jesus was accessible. And so people were not afraid to come and hear him. They were not afraid to talk to him. Now, in that day, it was normal. It was typical. It was just the way things were that religious people, especially religious leaders, did not associate with those who were irreligious. And though they call them here sinners, we're all sinners. But that was they were publicly viewed as outside the faith. 
outside the synagogue. And then also, in many cases, they had bad reputations that they had earned. So they would not, religious people would not associate with them even to teach them the scriptures. Because socializing with them implied guilt by association. It could appear that they were condoning the sinful behavior that was being practiced. And so consequently, the Pharisees and the scribes, those were like the the Jewish lawyers of the Old Testament scriptures, they are grumbling, it tells us in verse 2. And they say this man, he not only receives them, he eats with them. Eating was and is a sign of acceptance. So they are not happy about this. They, and they're not happy with him. They're criticizing Jesus. That's the point of criticism. The Pharisees were willing to uh, work with sinners. They were willing to teach them if they were penitent and ready to be taught. But they were never willing to seek them out. That's the big difference. They were not willing to seek them out. Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, over 100 years ago, he pointed out that the thing which the religious leaders found fault with Jesus was the very thing he had come on earth to do, to seek and to save those who are lost. So Jesus was willing to seek out sinners. And with that in mind, he gives these parables, we're going to look at two of the three, to defend his practice. So that's the purpose behind these two parables. First, the one with the lost sheep. He says, which one of you who has a hundred sheep and loses one does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? That's verse 4. So he says, what man among you? Of course you would. It just would be accepted what he's saying. Common sense. He's appealing to what was common practice in those days. But we see here in this parable several ways that, that Jesus emphasizes the love of God to the lost. And one way is that he calls them sheep. Now that's a common metaphor in the Bible. Uh, because we are like sheep, we need a shepherd. It's not a flattering picture. As you know, sheep are defenseless. Sheep are pitiful. If separated from the flock, they can't defend themselves. They have no claws. They don't have sharp teeth. They have no means of defense. Uh, they can't run away like a deer. So they're slower than their predators. They don't have a sense to find their way home like a dog would be able to. If knocked over, they're not even able to right themselves back on their feet. And so note that in the terms of the parable, we are all sheep, all of us. We are all sheep, but unbelievers are lost sheep in the parable. Uh, They wander from one thing to the next. They're vulnerable. They are farther away from the flock, from the fold, and they are constantly exposed to dangers from which they cannot defend themselves. And so I believe the point of of the metaphor of the sheep is one of simple compassion. How can a person not have pity, have compassion on such a helpless animal? In fact, Jesus is saying, if you do look on pity with them, that's normal. What man among you doesn't do this? And so it's normal. You would search. 
you would have compassion on them. So he's, south, he's by parallel saying, how then can you not look with compassion on lost souls, on lost people? How can you be filled with contempt and indignation toward them? Where is your pity? Where is your compassion? He's rhetorically asking the, the religious. Go after them. Pursue them. Save them. Persist and do this because God does. This is what God does for lost souls. He seeks us. He seeks to rescue us. He seeks to deliver us from destruction. Another observation is, is the ratio of 100 to 1. The shepherd discovers he's lost one sheep, but he still has 99. But he goes after the one. He does this even though it would be a minor a loss financially to him. I mean, he's still got 99 that are safe. If you have 100 pennies and you lose one, it's not the same as if you lose 50. But he's not lost 10 sheep. He's not even lost 20 sheep. He's just lost one. And so what Jesus is doing here is demonstrating that God values one lost soul out of 100. The shepherd's pursuit of one lost sheep represents the love of God for lost sinners. So we as Christ's disciples are never to rest while there are lost ones around the world. I teach the inquirers class. In the first class we have, we talk about the great commission that we're to make disciples of all nations, nations being ethne, people groups, ethnic groups, not just boundaries, geographical boundaries. So within the U.S. there are many people groups. Within other countries, most other countries, that's true as well. And so that is what we are to be about until Christ comes again. We are to make disciples. And the world's population is something over 7 billion today. Those who know these things estimate that those who have yet to hear number more than 3 billion. 3 billion have yet to hear about Christ. They have heard less than you have heard the past five minutes about Jesus. In most cases, they've never heard his name. We should not rest while there are lost ones around us. Then third observation is he talks about the persistence of the search of the shepherd, the owner. He searches, it says here, until he finds it. He doesn't search for a little while and quit. He searches until he finds this lost sheep. Perhaps there were hardships and danger, but the shepherd moves ahead. He braves the heat, the cold. If there were cliffs, if there were gorges, he does this for the sake of the lost one. And so he so values even one sheep that he searches persistently over and over until he finds it. That is what God has done. The incarnation of Christ, becoming a man, reveals that. The cross expresses God seeking, his grace seeking, prompted by his great love and his great mercy that he has on the lost, even like the shepherd on this one sheep. Do you feel distant from God? Do you feel alienated from him? If so, you are the one who has created that distance. You have withdrawn. You have wandered off. Because with God and Christ, there is still an open invitation with open arms from the Father. Another observation is the joy that the shepherd has in finding the lost sheep. Look at verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
He's alone. He's alone out there and he finds it. And he's rejoicing. He puts this on his shoulders to carry it back. Maybe he's tired, but he's overjoyed. He forgets his weary limbs and he happily carries the beast home. And so this sheep, even though it's one out of a hundred, is no mere possession. It's an object of the shepherd's love. He has great affection for it, too. So he gathers his friends. He gathers his neighbors. It says he calls them, and then in verse 6, he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep what was, which was lost. He wants others to share in his joy. And then Jesus in verse 7, speaks of the joy in heaven, the joyful response. It's the main point of the parable. So I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Heaven rejoices. Heaven celebrates when a sinner repents. And this is not speech like many of us use when we speak about heaven. Uh, if you've studied the Bible and the descriptions of heaven... We, uh, it's often portrayed in what will not be there as much as what will be there. There will be no suffering, no tears, things like that. So we, there'll be no sin, there'll be no temptation. But there's still a lot of speculation. As it, we know it will be wonderful. We know Christ will be there. We know a lot of other things about it, but there's still a level, level of speculation. And so sometimes, even within the church, often within the church, people talk about heaven as though they know something the rest of us don't. Well, I, I know Aunt Sally sure was glad to see so-and-so. And I, you know, we're kind of polite and say, but at the same time, they don't know that, right? I mean, how do you know that? He knows this. This is, this is dead on, because Christ knows and he says that in, he says with certainty, when he speaks about heaven, that there is joy, there is joy with the Father and with the angels over one sinner who repents. This isn't our speculation, this is Christ's certainty. I remember as a youngster those rare occasions when I was in sheer surprise and delight when a, my parents or a teacher or a coach or friends cheered me when I accomplished something that was noteworthy in academics, in athletics, or wherever it might be. I mean, it's nice, it's, almost, it's exhilarating to have someone celebrate something you do, isn't it? Your family, and then imagine if you do something, and maybe some of you have, and you get notoriety in the entire city. Maybe you're in the newspaper and you're congratulated for something great you did. Imagine an entire state or a nation. But this heavenly celebration exceeds them all. This is the ultimate audience. God and his angels are rejoicing. So Christ is saying, we should pity and pursue the lost. And if God loves the lost, so must we. And if heaven celebrates the rescue of the lost, so must we. But he's not finished. So to hammer home the same point, he goes on to the next parable about this lost coin. A little briefer, a little different, makes the same point with a few different details. It's not a lost sheep this time, this time it's a coin. Verse 8, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? If you see pictures even today of 
that part of the world in Palestine. The houses were adobe-type arrangements, rectangular, and had one small window. The reason the window was small is to keep the heat out. And so they were very dark in and of themselves. Floor consisted of, of dirt with dried reeds and rushes and so forth. But the point is that if you dropped a coin in a dark room on a floor like that, it would be difficult to find. One commentator said it would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Yet that's what she does. She is diligent, and she searches until she finds it. And once she finds the coin, just like the shepherd did, she calls together her friends and neighbors, and then verse 9 tells us, she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And the conclusion is the same. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there will be Joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, the, in other words, the parable is teaching the same point with a little bit different emphasis. Here's the different emphasis. In this parable, the lost are hopeless. And it's emphasizing the hopelessness of the lost because Jesus likens a lost sinner to a coin, and a coin can do nothing to help with its own recovery. Think about a sheep. A sheep might wander in the direction where the shepherd might be searching. The sheep might make enough noise to be heard. But a coin? A coin cannot find itself. A lost sinner cannot find his way back to God by trying to change your morality or turning over a new leaf or walking a new path on your own. You cannot do it. Because we are incapable. Ephesians says that the biblical picture of lostness is death. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, it tells us in Ephesians 2. So the Christian faith is not a religion of personal effort. It's, It's not a religion of trying to improve myself, trying to reform myself, trying to pick myself up by my bootstraps. It is a religion of grace. Look, notice the one-sided nature of the search. With the lost coin, all the focus is on the action of the searcher, of the woman. Unlike how we may feel about the sheep, which evokes sympathy, in this parable, all the attention is on the woman as she lights a lamp, as she sweeps the house, as she searches carefully. And so when she finds it, No credit goes to the coin because finding it is entirely due to her diligence in searching. So what are we to understand from this? What are we to understand from this parable of this lost coin? If we are to be found, it will be the result of a sovereign and gracious search of God. That's what Jesus is emphasizing that God has been on the pursuit. And God is pursuing some of you. And he has pursued you in the past. And he's brought circumstances into your life. He's brought blessing or affliction or a broken heart or the loss of a loved one or great blessing to show his kindness, which is intended, Romans says, to lead us to repentance. He shows his kindness to lead us to him. He's brought people into your life. He's brought opportunities into your lives. 
And so he has placed us in just the right place at the right time to hear what we needed to hear. And so Jesus is explaining as he's talking to these religious critics who are condemning him because he socializes with tax collectors and sinners. His answer is that he is like the searching woman. And therefore we, we his followers are to be like the searching woman too. The lost will not be found unless we go to search for them. God uses a lamp. We are the lamp. We are the lights. God uses a broom. We are the broom. And he searches carefully. We are his hands and his feet in this search. And so if the parable of the lost sheep was to evoke our sense of sympathy toward the lost, then this parable evokes our sense of responsibility Don't expect the lost coin to crawl out from under the straw which covers the floor. Don't expect it to call out for help. Lost sheep may want to be rescued. They may realize they're lost and afraid. Lost coins are oblivious to it. They're oblivious to everything. So how should we respond uh, to this? What's what's our responsibility? We know what Jesus was saying to the to the Pharisees and religious leaders who were condemning him. But as his follower, how should these parables affect us, affect me? Believer? Well, two. First, to the believer, and second, I want to speak to those of you who, as of yet, do not believe. First, we are to pray for the lost. It really boils down to three things. We're to pray for the lost. We're to give to support those who take the gospel to the lost. And we are to go ourselves with the gospel to the lost. So we we pray, we give, and we go. We pray for those who are lost at home. We pray, we give, and go for those who are lost with unreached peoples around the world. This is not a secondary matter. It's a primary matter. So we are to preach and teach and pray and live the gospel as Christ ambassadors, pleading, entreating, begging to be reconciled to God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5. Second, as believers, we cannot stand aloof from the lost. We cannot despise the tax collector and sinners. You know in the Bible to what despise means? It just means to be apathetic toward, to care nothing about, to have nothing to do with them. That's what it means to despise someone in the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean a hostile feeling toward them or hatred toward them. It's just, I don't care. I'm apathetic toward them. In that sense, I despise them. We cannot ignore them or be indifferent to their plight. When do we rejoice? You and I probably rejoice at much of the same things. You cheer for your team for the touchdown, for the home run. We rejoice at births and birthdays and weddings and anniversaries. Jesus is saying if we value lost souls, we will find their repentance an occasion of great rejoicing, as do the angels, the angels of God. And so we will long to see that person who is far from God, the immoral man or woman, the dishonest crook, the harsh or cruel leader, the abuser of substances, the the pusher, the pornographer, the gangster, the thug, the criminal, as well as the religious but nominal believer, the religious but fraudulent, the religious but who is really a hypocrite. We desire to see them all repent. And when they do... When they do, we will rejoice. 
And this requires the outlook that is taught in these parables. I must perceive the worth of each lost soul. I must know the love of God for each lost soul. If I don't think God loves them, why would I love them? For those of you that may doubt whether God loves everybody, what do you do with these parables? It's clear. That's what Jesus is saying. There was compassion on that lost sheep. So I need to see others as God sees them. We will diligently engage in loving and befriending and reaching out to lost souls. And we will rejoice when lost souls are brought to repentance and faith in Christ. Now, I realize that the word evangelism conjures up all sorts of positive and negative things in people's minds. I heard once that Christians and non-Christians both fear one thing, and that is evangelism. I don't know if that's true. I remember as a college student, and I had been walking with Christ for a few years when this happened. I was in a fast food restaurant, which is an oxymoron, I guess. On uh, one night by myself, I was eating a hamburger, and I saw a guy that looked a little older than two girls that looked probably like seniors in high school. They came through the front door of that restaurant, and they looked around, and they had the girls had dresses down to the to their feet, long dresses, and they looked to me like they were coming from a, an, a, a, a revival meeting at a church. And the huge Bibles under their arms was a dead giveaway too. But they came through the door, and, they, and, and one of them, I, she kind of, I'll take him, you know. And so next thing I know, I'm sitting, <laughs> and she's right across me, and I don't know if she even asked me my name, but then she said, are you saved? And, and I said, yes, I, I, I believe in Christ. And she asked a few more questions. I guess she got the answer she wanted, and she was gone. It's the closest I think I've ever come to being mugged. <laughs> now, please, please. I had the greatest respect for her boldness. I wish I had half that zeal. But it made me, it was a mere reflection of me questioning how was I coming across to others at my university when I was very aggressive, which I was, with evangelism. It just made me think about maybe establishing a little more rapport and things like that. A number of years ago, we were having a retreat, a church-wide retreat. And a, the theme of that, the speaker, who I don't even remember who the speaker was, but it had to do with sharing your faith. It had to do with evangelism. And one of the women in our church who'd been here a long time, she said, tell me about this retreat. My husband and I are interested in going. And I said, well, it would be this. Here's the place. Here's what we're going to do. And she said, what are you going to talk about? I said, well, the speaker's going to talk about evangelism. And she went, evangelism? That was it. That brought that conversation to an end. They wanted nothing to do with that weekend conference. Now, maybe her understanding was back to my hamburger encounter or something like that. Maybe that was her. Maybe there had been a bad experience in the past. But on the authority of God's word... Every one of us are to have the mind of Christ, to have compassion for the lost, to seek the lost, and recognizing that God rejoices. He and the angels in his presence rejoice when even one sinner repents. That's the words to the believer, last of all, to the unbeliever. If you're here today and you, as of yet, don't have faith in Christ, you've not 
received him. Put your faith in him. Jesus welcomes sinners. He eats with them here. So no one should stay away from the banquet table for fear of being rejected. Or he won't accept me if he only knew what I've done. Do not stay away. Do not refuse his love. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him who is happy to receive you, who rejoices to receive you. And you will be saved. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, often what is on our hearts does not reflect what's on your heart. We pray that with the proper understanding of what is on your heart, a desire to see the lost found and rejoicing when it happens in your presence, we pray that you'd put that on our hearts and that the little bit of time that you've given us in these lives as your servants, we pray would be invested as disciples in seeking to make known the gospel to others as we pray, as we give, as we go, as we support those who are cross-cultural, do everything that we can to get the word out and help us even this week to notice people you've put in our lives that so far we've not really noticed. We've not paid them much attention. We haven't even paid enough attention to pray for them. So we pray that this week there would be progress by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.